there's a lot of people around here, and there's some really, really good folks to share. So I think you'll have a great time with, with them. Um, okay. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to John 21, because that's where we'll be. I, I would like to begin by telling you a brief story that I went skiing uh, a couple of weeks ago. My Crystal, my daughter, and uh, son-in-law and two grandkids now live in Denver, uh, and we hadn't seen them in a while, so we took off back to Denver right at the beginning of April, and the ski areas are all still open, so I got to go skiing. Um, and I have enjoyed skiing for years, grew up in Colorado, so that's kind of a thing that you do. And one of the interesting things about skiing is that there's kind of basic rules of skiing that you learn uh, one way or another. And there are things like uh, keep your shoulders pointed downhill, bend your knees, wait on the downhill ski. Uh, those sorts of rules are just like the rules of skiing. And I remember learning how to ski when I was probably in junior high. And this guy's telling me, Rick, you got to bend your knees. I know I'm supposed to bend my knees. And, and uh, you know, keep your shoulders pointed down the mountain, wait on the downhill ski. On and on it goes, and you're just like, if you say that one more time, I'll take this ski pole, and you know. <laughs> and, and then one day, Crystal moved to Denver. In the in-between times, of course, I had actually learned to ski, um, and she wanted me to help her learn to ski. And so I'm up on the mountain telling Crystal, okay, Crystal, bend your knees. Keep your weight on the downhill ski. Make sure your shoulders are pointed right down the mountain. Uh, and I'm seeing all these things that used to drive me absolutely crazy. And I can see Crystal getting more. I know, Dad. I know. You already said that, Dad. I am bending my knees. See that? You know? And you have these sort of kind of mm, moments. And then we were teaching our grandson, Levi, how to ski, who's now age five. And guess what Crystal's telling Levi? <laughs> what goes around comes around. Now, in the midst of this adventure, um, I got a day in of skiing, and since Sherry was helping out covering Levi and the kids early, we all went skiing. The older ones went skiing all together at the beginning. We had a little adventure. And in my little ski adventure, I crashed. Now, if you're not familiar with skiing, you may confuse a crash with a fall. So let me just <laughs> clarify these two things. When you fall, the thing you do afterwards is get back up. When you crash, the thing you af do afterwards is reassemble. <laughs> because basically, a skiing crash is defined by the fact that certain items that you had before the crash, you no longer are in possession of. That might be... Motorcycles are worse. Uh, it might be articles of clothing. It might be articles of ski equipment. It might be body parts. It's just, you know, whatever it is, it's strewn across the mountain. You go up and pick up. Now, fortunately, in this case, my son-in-law was up the mountain for me, and he collected the miscellaneous pieces and gave them all back to me so I didn't have to climb up the mountain. And um, Crystal was talking to me about this after and says, Dad, I don't think I've ever seen you crash before. What happened? Now, that's probably an exaggeration, but it's true. I don't spend a lot of time crashing on a ski slope. Um, and there were so many things I could have said. I'm like, well, Crystal, it was a really steep run, okay? I mean, let's be serious. And by the way, it was a little narrow gully I was skiing down. 
And there was not only a big mogul, but this is like April, and so you get snow, but you also get like bear spots. So I had just navigated a bear spot, and I'm coming in not the way I had planned into the place where the snow was again. And by the way, this is the first time I've skied in five years, and this is my second run, so give me a little bit of a break. <laughs> but you know what? All of those things are not why I crashed. Because I was about a half an inch away from not crashing at all, and all those things still would have been true, right? The reason I crashed is because I didn't keep my shoulders pointed downhill, <laughs> didn't bend my knees, didn't keep my weight on a downhill ski. And you know what? There's not like two sets of rules for skiing, one set for the novice, one set for the expert. There's only one set of rules for skiing, and the difference between the novice and the expert as the expert is able to apply those rules successfully again and again and again in ever more increasingly difficult circumstances. There's nothing different. And in that sense, skiing is a whole lot like the Christian life. We keep thinking there's like some magic thing, and I have been around the Christian world long enough to see us go through three or four like, man, Oh, if we only do this, we need to fast, we need to do these spiritual this, and we need to do that thing. We need, and we're, we're looking for like the new set of rules. So I'll become the expert skier Christian. And the bottom line is all that happens is Jesus says, oh. <laughs> hey, Michael, watch this one. Langer thinks he knows how to bend his knees. Watch this. Wah! And there I go. Down a different sort of a slope than I had anticipated. And then pew, everything goes, and then you just have to reassemble. And this is sort of the passage that we're meeting today in John 21. I, I think it would be safe to say the disciples just had a hard time. Jesus was freshly crucified. And indeed, he was resurrected from the dead. But honestly, in John 21, these guys don't really get it yet. I mean, they know Jesus was resurrected. But they don't know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And so you see this sort of moment when they're trying to figure out what in the world do we do. And here's the deal. What you do in a moment like that is just go back to the basic rules of Christian living. And in this passage, we meet two really, really good rules. Rule number one is when you, <laughs> when you don't know what to do, run straight to Jesus. It's a really, really simple rule. The other was when you find your way to Jesus, love him more than these, whatever these might be for you. Run to Jesus and love him more than these. It's just interesting. I'm just sitting here thinking about the challenge of actually applying that in various circumstances in my own life right now. You know, there's things that really bug you. Let me just be frank. I've noticed the things that bug me haven't changed an enormous amount through the course of the years. And then they always seem to amp up. 
It's like I'm skiing steeper and steeper slopes. And somewhere I have to figure out, how do I keep doing the run to Jesus and love him more than these? So, with that in mind, let's take a look at this wonderful, fascinating passage. Many of you are probably familiar with it. Some of you are probably not. Let me, it's a long enough passage. I don't want to read through everything, so I'm going to kind of hit a few highlights here. At the beginning of the passage, Jesus has revealed himself to the disciples, and John is telling already in Jerusalem, and he's telling a story of how he does it again up at the Sea of Tiberias. They went up to Galilee. Um, and Simon Peter and basically about seven of the disciples head north uh, from Jerusalem up to the Sea of Galilee. It's probably 60, 80 mile walk. I presume that they were doing to get up there, so that took them a couple of days to, to, to be up there. And once they got up there, didn't know exactly what to do, and so Peter came up with a bright idea, I've got it, let's go fishing. So they go fishing, and they head out on the boat early in the morning, um, and uh, they fish all night, and they don't catch anything. By the way, does this sound vaguely familiar? I mean, it's kind of like this is a repeat performance for these guys, right? So they're out fishing. They didn't catch any fish. And they come around. There's some dude standing on shore and saying, hey, guys, how's it going? Did you catch anything? And they're saying, nope, no fish. And he says, why don't you throw the net out on the other side of the boat, on the right side of the boat? Boom. 153 fish. How in the world did I come up with that number? Because apparently they counted. I mean, it's like recorded in scripture. I don't know. I didn't make it up. It just says they pulled up the net with 153 fish in it. And John is in the boat with Peter, and he's like, it's Jesus. And Peter, roughly speaking, says nothing at all. He just hurls himself out of the boat and gets from wherever he is to Jesus just as fast as he can. And the weird thing is, in this story, is that when he gets there, um, Jesus is just serving breakfast. It's kind of interesting. You know, and, and I want to emphasize the situation for the disciples here. It's easy, you know, particularly the disciples, they have a knack for having all their worst moments recorded in Scripture. It's kind of entertaining to read as long as you don't stop and ask us, would I have been any better? So you're reading this story, and they're headed back to Galilee, and it's easy to read this whole passage as kind of a here we go again, not just that they're back to the thing of fishing at night, and Jesus says, hey, throw it on the other side, and they get the fish and all this kind of stuff. But but they're, they're back in the fishing. They're back in Galilee. They're back doing the things that they had done before. This is all very true. And it's easy to read that as perhaps a statement of they've just abandoned Jesus. You know, we already know Peter has denied Jesus before, and they didn't know what to do. So maybe they're just saying, I've had it with old Jesus thing. I'm going back to Galilee. I'm going back to the boats. That would be unfair in this passage because one of the interesting things that Jesus says to all of the disciples uh, upon his first appearances, he says, go to Galilee, and I'll meet you there. So these guys aren't misbehaving, so to speak, when they headed up to Galilee. That was the place where Jesus told them to go. Now, they don't know exactly why, and they don't know what to do, which is you know, clear from, Jesus, from Paul or uh, Peter just saying, hey, let's go, go fishing. But that they were in Galilee is actually just fine. And it is a bit weird. I mean, I just want you to think about this. If this was all happening in the L.A. area, 
It's kind of like G Jerusalem is Los Angeles, and that's where the resurrection, crucifixion, resurrection take place. And Jesus pops out of, you know, the grave, and he's chatting with the guys here in Hollywood Bowl or something. He says, hey, guys, uh, why don't you head out to Barstow, and I'll meet you there in a week. And I have to admit, if someone said, I'll head out to Barstow, and I'll meet you there in a week, I mean... If it's Jesus, okay, I'll head to Barstow, but at the very least, I'd like to ask, why? Why Barstow? I, I mean, did you misspell that? Did I get this text wrong, one of those fill-in-the-blank things? I, I, what? Barstow? Because that's roughly speaking what Galilee was like in the minds of people. And of course, there's this, in, in Nazareth was the armpit of Galilee, so to speak. This is their, their home turf. But that's where they all head off to. And they don't know what to do, and it's really interesting if you fast forward a handful of weeks and you pick up the story in the book of Acts, and you see Peter standing up and delivering this sermon at Pentecost, and thousands of people coming to Christ, and then you see him standing up before people in the synagogue and all these other things, and Peter has got his act together. He knows what he's about in Acts chapter 2. And really, in this chapter, it isn't so much that he's rebelling. He just doesn't know what he's about. So he just goes back to what he knows, which is how to fish. So he's fishing. But really, the interesting thing is what happens in this story is part of what makes the transition from his absence of vision to clarity of vision that we meet in Acts chapter 2 and then beyond. Uh, so this passage bears, I think, some, some careful scrutiny. So... The interesting thing here is that we have seven disciples all together, and I would like to pause right at that point and just say, don't take that for granted. Uh, you know, Judas wasn't there, right? And I know there was that, like, whole suicide in the field thing, so of course that would have been hard for him to show up, but I'm just guessing even if that hadn't happened, he probably wouldn't have been welcome. But you ever stop to think the minor miracle is that Peter was welcome? I mean, I want you to stop and think about what Peter had actually done at this point. He started off by throwing all the other guys under the bus. There was the other six dudes here that he's hanging out with were the guys of which Peter said, they may all deny you and abandon you, but not me. No, no, I would never betray you even unto death. These are the guys whom Peter had so nicely thrown under the bus before Jesus. Oh. Thank you so much, Peter. And then, of course, Peter had turned around and, uh, you know, whipped out a sword, whacked off the high priest's ear, and Jesus said, uh, Peter, that's just not the way this thing's going down, so put, put the sword away before you hurt yourself. And then he follows that up by denying Jesus. And you can't read this as fake news or an accident. He does it three times. In case you didn't get it the first time, I've never known him. And he's denying this to a servant girl. What power did she have over him? But he denies it and denies it and denies it. And then he caps it off by taking a solemn oath of denial. Wow. How do you say, oops, I misspoke? You know, I, that really wasn't available to him at that point. I mean, that's what Peter 
had done. So you can imagine the disciples just looking at Peter and like, dude, I mean, you did all this. And, you know, first you attack this guy with a sword, and then the next thing you know, you're chickening out before some servant girl. Um, What sort of leadership is that? You're supposed to be the rock. You're not even a weather vane. Seriously. We're supposed to follow you? We're supposed to follow any leader? How can we trust you again? I mean, seriously. How can we trust you again? Talk about somebody disqualifying himself from ministry. Peter done a pretty good job. Though here's the interesting thing. Let's think about this from Peter's viewpoint. You can imagine Peter looking at the guys and saying, okay, fine. I messed up. What did you guys do? You did nothing. Absolutely nothing. I thought you guys would abandon Jesus and I'd stick around. Fine. I was wrong about me, but you know what? I was right about you. You just dead on abandoned Jesus. You whimpered under the olive trees while I pulled off a sword and whacked off the servant's ear. Got that it wasn't a great move. Was yours so grand? Seriously? You proud of that? You scampered away like a bunch of cockroaches when you turn on the light in the kitchen when the soldiers came. And yeah, I'm hitting, sitting there in the courtyard and this servant girl grills me and I deny Jesus three times. I can't stand up to her questions. You know what? You weren't even there to hear them. I failed the test. Got it. You never took it. I'm just saying, these are some guys who had a lot of reasons not to hang out together. One thing about hurt and blame, there's always enough to go around. Grace, forgiveness, not so much. And somehow, these disciples decided, you know what? Let's leave that in the past. And so they got together, and they headed up to Galilee. And Peter said, let's go fishing. And they went fishing with him. I think they decided that they'd lost Jesus and it wouldn't help anything to lose each other too. So they hung out together. They didn't know what to do, but they knew they'd do it together. (laughs) I'd like to argue that this is kind of a shining moment for the disciples who don't really offer that many in the Gospels, um, we should put that in their Hall of Fame, that seven of them went together up to Galilee, together. Peter 
and the guys went to get them. So what did they do? Well, as we mentioned, they went fishing. Um, they had this whole interesting interchange with Jesus. Let me just highlight something about this interchange, because we already alluded to the fact that this is a parallel sort of story to one that took place in Luke chapter 5. Of course, some people think this is just a parallel story in a different context and all that. I, I don't think that argument bears scrutiny for the reason, the point that I'd just like to make, is that in Luke chapter 5, They've been fishing all day, they don't all night, they don't catch a thing, and Jesus is on the shore and says, hey, why don't you cast the net out again? And then they get the net that's so full, in this case, they didn't bother counting the fish because they were all in a panic because the net was ripping and they got the other guy with the boat out and they dumped all the fish in the two boats and both of the boats began to sink. Um, and they were having a fish crisis, just like they were here, just this one was a little worse. Uh, but here's the interesting thing in Luke chapter 5. I don't know if you remember what Peter says in that context. He looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, depart from us for we are unclean people. We are sinful people. And it's so interesting to see Peter making the exact opposite response in this case. In Luke chapter 5, he fled from Jesus. In John chapter 21, he flees to Jesus. And let's be honest, he has no idea what Jesus is going to say to him. I mean, the first word may be, Peter, good to see you, buddy. We got a few things we need to talk about, you know. It could have been rebuke. It could have been anything. And, and Peter, I mean, what was he going to say? Ah, oh, it didn't really happen, you know. I mean, you know what? At this point, <laughs> Peter applied the great rule of Christian skiing and says, I don't care what Jesus says. I'm just going to go to him. And whatever else comes will be way better than the option of being somewhere else. So off to Jesus, he heads. And <laughs> It's kind of interesting. So, you know, you've got this great moment here. Been resurrected. You're up here in Galilee. You got the disciples there. You have this sort of, uh, you know, moment where he's, whatever's going to happen in Galilee, it's about to start, right? I mean, this is the thing. I go to Galilee. I'll meet you there. So, boom, here he is meeting them there. And what does Jesus do in this, like, big crescendo moment? He cooked some breakfast. I mean, seriously, you look at this, there's like details. Ah, he had the bread over here on one fire. I had some fish coming. He already had some fish. They brought in some more fish, cooked some more fish. We got the whole thing. some fish tacos, some burritos, and all this. And you're just sitting there. In this moment, what in the world is Jesus doing cooking the disciples' breakfast? This one actually has a relatively simple answer. It was too early for lunch. But the bottom line is, Jesus was just doing the thing he does again and again and again throughout the Gospels, and that is just embracing ordinary life. You want to have dinner? Just say, hey, sure, come on over, let's have dinner. Have dinner with the tax collector? No problem. Have dinner with the Pharisee? No problem. Have dinner with the Pharisee that a prostitute comes to? No problem. He had very low social rules when it came to ordinary life. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, prostitute, tax collector, Pharisee, we're all good. We're all good. Let's have dinner. And here he is, pretty much doing that same thing again. 
There's a lot of big things in life, a lot of hard things in life, a lot of terrible things in life, honestly. But one of the worst things we can do is fail to appreciate Jesus in the little things, in the ordinary things. In fact, one of the disasters in my mind of the last about six or seven years in our country is that everything has taken on apocalyptic dimensions. If this person doesn't get elected, the world as we know it will end. The country will end. The whatever it is will end. If this doesn't happen in the church, and we have had the battles in the church as much as we've had them by here, I mean, not Trinity, well, maybe you've had them in Trinity too, but I mean, church writ large, I'm just saying as we look around, Everything has taken on this kind of apocalyptic dimension. There is no ordinary life left. We shot it in the head. And we way undervalue it. I got a crash course in this last night. So we have a small group down in Fullerton. I can't help myself. Um, so I've, my entire Christian life has been marked by small group fellowship. It's great in the good times, better yet in the hard times. And uh, we hadn't been together for a while. We were all busy, a bunch of folks that I know from Biola are there. And we started talking just prayer requests. We had a plan for like a Bible study thing and all that we were going to do, but we started talking prayer requests partly because we hadn't been together. We had, we had a long talk. And we began to talk about some things at Biola. We began to talk about things in some individual family lives, uh, talked about some things going on with... Uh, there's several folks that have connections with crews. Uh, there's been a hard time for crew, like it's been a hard time for many denominations and churches and all those other things. Everybody's in the same pot in that regard. Um, and we all got our momentum up a little bit about expressing our distress about these different things that we're all a part of. And uh, things began to go a little bit apocalyptic, if I were to be honest, in terms of not relative to each other, just thinking if this doesn't happen, you know, the world must end kind of things. We really need to pray because otherwise. And, and then it was somebody's birthday. And uh, two of the guys have guitars. One of them broke out the guitar. Um, and we, we didn't even bother singing happy birthday, but he's a friend of mine actually from all the way back when I was in Colorado. And he wrote this beautiful little song about Colorado that his wife actually loves. And so he played this song about Colorado. And then we sang a couple of hymns. And we were sitting out back on a patio. There's one of those little gas, LP gas fireplace things around us. And the sun's kind of going down, gone down. And we're just singing together. And we sang hymns. We sang some of the most idiotic songs about excessive drinking of black coffee. I have some interesting friends who are very creative for no good reason. And so there you go. Um, and honestly, it was simply wonderful. I had to leave early because I was getting here early, so we left while they were still singing. I still feel a slight amount of mourning for that fact, but I'm in the car riding home with Sherry, and I said, you know what? I just feel better about everything right now. All these things that seem so apocalyptic when we're sharing our prayer requests, it's uncanny what some of these spectacular little moments we have are 
on this little blue orb that we call planet Earth. And that's what Jesus gave these guys here. A little bit of fellowship, sit around the fire, cook some food, tell some stories. Hey, Jesus, how's it going? Well, pretty good. Got resurrected this week. Oh. Hey, how'd that go? He's like, well, hey, scared the togas right off a couple Roman soldiers. I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, wish I was there. You know, you can just see these guys. This happening. That's what they're doing here. And they make this interesting comment in, in verse 12. He says, no one asked Jesus if it was him because they all knew it was him. And in Luke 24, you get this interesting story about the road to Emmaus, and they're walking along Jesus, and he begins to do exegesis of all the Old Testament. These guys are going, ooh, yeah, profound. And you can just see them, their, their theological wheels turning. Um, and in this case, Jesus dishes up a few fish tacos. And there's the magic of ordinary life there in which they see Jesus. It's really not a bad thing when things are bad to just go to one of the places that you like to meet Jesus. Maybe the mountain, maybe the beach, doesn't matter. Wherever you go, whatever you do. And here's my suspicion. It's possible that Jesus will give you one of those road to Emmaus discourses where you suddenly unpack all the mysteries of scripture in a little shot and you're, well, thank you, Jesus, now I know. Far more likely, is he'll just hand you a bagel. Kind of give you the elbow. I know it's not a resurrection, Rick, but do you see that sunset? Pretty special, isn't it? Have you ever thought about how crazy a sunset is? 93 million miles away, a thermonuclear explosion is taking place in this little thing we call the sun. Because it's a thermonuclear explosion, there's a whole lot of heat going out, and you should be way glad that you're 93 million miles away, because otherwise you'd be a french fry. So you're looking at the sun go down, and it's like there's a billion miracles happening for you to be sitting there looking at the sun go down. And you know what we do is we take it for granted every single day. It's not bad to stop and think, gee, I think Jesus might be here. I think he might have had something to do with this. Maybe I can just savor him for a moment in the midst of all the other stuff that's going on. And it has a way of re-equilibrating the size of our problems. Roughly speaking, how big is your problem really in comparison to the size of the sun? Oh, well, yeah, okay, relatively small. And how big is it in comparison to church history? If we had to have time, I'd tell you a fascinating story about the Donatists. I know you probably don't care about the Donatists, but you should care about the Donatists. Really interesting people from church history who made some unfortunate choices. Um, but that really doesn't matter so much in this context. The, the thing that really matters to me is that when we think of church history, we think of the we, we so often get wrapped up in all the things that have gone wrong. We tell stories about the Crusades, we approve slavery, we do all these things. And when we think of the church, we think dark thoughts. It's not bad to stop and think of the church and say, you know the most amazing thing about the church? 
is after all these kinds of screw-ups, there's two billion of us today all around the planet. That does indeed guarantee with those kind of numbers some real screw-ups, okay? So if you got two billion, someone's going wrong every minute. <laughs> got it. But the most amazing thing about church history isn't a bunch of people who've misbehaved through crusades and persecutions and other things like that. It's two billion people who now gather on Sunday mornings around the communion table and worship the lamb who was slain but who rose again. We celebrate hope, otherwise lost in death. We celebrate not only hope, but also healing. We celebrate our forgiveness. We celebrate that which we have in common, which is the abject inability to save ourselves, right? So we come to the table. We and two billion of our buddies every morning, every Sunday morning. So there's a lot of fantastic, ordinary stuff that goes on in this passage. And the one thing before I close I do want to talk briefly about is what in many ways we might view as the central part of the passage because there was this sort of thing that had gone on between Peter and Jesus. And you know what? Peter doesn't get to dodge that bullet. Jesus doesn't ignore him. So in verses 15 through the end of the chapter 25, you have a little chat where Peter turns to Simon as it records in the text. <laughs> Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. It's like, in case there was like three or four other Simons running around, we thought we'd invoke three names just to make sure I got your attention, right? It reminds me of my mom saying, Richard Charles Langer. You know, I mean, got my attention, mom. So my daughter says this to my grandson, Levi Charles. Charles is my grandson's middle name. Whenever she says that, I tense up. <laughs> I, I'm just like, oh yeah. So this is that moment where like Jesus has invoked the name collection, you know? And... He says, so, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus decides to repeat himself, round two. Same routine. Round three, Jesus goes at it again. And Peter finally says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I have no idea what more I can say. And, and Jesus says, good, just feed my sheep. Get back to what I've called you to do before. We're good. Well, you didn't confront him about that whole oath thing. I'm still worked up about the oath, Lord. That was a solemn oath. We're not supposed to do those kind of things. You see these sort of interchanges sometimes with people, and it's like you're really worried that Jesus is going to screw up somebody else's story. You know what? Number one, I doubt he will. Number two, I think he's in better place to make that assessment than you, right? 
And of course, this is what happens as Peter turns around to kind of dodge the bullet and say, that John guy, see that little snivelly John guy who's the young whippersnapper, writes all these weird stories about me? Anyhow, he's back there. What about him? Is he going to have the same deal? And we just hear one of those great responses from Jesus. And he's like, dude, if he gets to remain here until I return, what in the world is that to you? As for you, follow me. Cool thing about Peter, it's exactly what he did. That's the Peter we meet in Acts chapter 2. The guy said, okay, okay. So interesting, he calls him Simon, sometimes drops the Peter phrase. What does Peter mean? Rock. That rock on which we were going to build the church. You can almost imagine Peter's toes curling up in his shoes when that name is not used of him. Have I just lost my job? And Jesus just says, dude, just feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So what do we do when things get tough? Well, we apply the rules of Christian skiing in ever more difficult circumstances. From wherever you are, find your way to Jesus. And then make sure you love him more than these. Whatever those these things might be. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the words of kind of restoration, but also just sort of ordinary life and ordinary comfort that you extended to the disciples. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for healing, but Lord, we thank you for your death and resurrection. We thank you that the reason we come to you is that no one else has the words of eternal life. Um, I thank you that that's the words that Peter said. And I've quoted those to myself more times than I can remember over the last 50 years of following you. So Lord, thank you for meeting the disciples in Galilee, for meeting us here in Redlands. Thank you. And Lord, I pray that we'd just all be able to say, all right, it's time to go follow you. Give us the grace to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.